Hello and welcome to Paleo Cinema Podcast 216. My name is Terry Frost and this time around I've got a couple of movies for you from the 1970s. The first one is uh, kind of almost black exploitation, but not exactly film. Very political, very controversial. Called The Spook Who Sat By The Door, directed by Ivan Dixon. It's a must-see movie. The other one is Clint Eastwood's directorial debut, an action kind of horror thriller called Play Misty For Me, which I haven't seen. This is the first time I've seen it in 40 years. But anyway, uh, sit back, I will get the contact details out of the way, and we'll get the show started. Paleo Cinema Podcast appears every two weeks. It's a podcast of classic movie appreciation. The only rule we have is that the movies have to be more than 20 years old. Uh, feedback's important to podcasters, so if you'd like to leave reviews on iTunes, they'd be very welcome. You can also send voicemails or emails to feedbackpaleo at gmail.com or go to the Paleo Cinema Cafe on Facebook. You'll even friend me up on Facebook as long as you're nice and civil and don't spit on the carpet. Just be aware that the podcast does have adult themes at times, so just be aware of that. Uh, anyway, I'll get on with the show now, and um, I hope you enjoy it. Okay, so how is everybody going all around this clay and granite planet of ours? Um, yeah, it's so interesting times here. Um, I have been made redundant from my job. I got the information about a week and a half ago, and I'm kind of okay with it. Uh, as I might have mentioned before on the podcast, uh, I wanted to start doing some things that I'm really passionate about. I've started writing a few essays, which are up on Facebook and on, on the Patreon page, and kind of talking about movies and writing about movies, more importantly. And that's kind of cool, and I'm uh, enjoying that. I'm on a learning curve with it. Getting the ideas down on paper is one thing. Getting them in an order that's interesting is another. So they are a work in progress. But uh, I'm doing partly memoirs, partly reviews. I did a bit about how I've always seen cinemas as a sanctuary. That's up there if people want to take a look at that. Um, I kind of like it. I, I, it may need some tweaking at some stage in the future. But I'm kind of pleased with what I put down there, um, mixing kind of autobiography with cinema and that's always a, a nice thing for me so i've been doing that uh i'm still at work until the first of august second of august august is my roster day off so it's the last day i'm technically going to be at work but i'm not actually going to be at work so in the meantime i'm just kind of doing a bit of work and tidying up some loose ends and it's a kind of a downer at work because some people have left already some people haven't uh, and the people that haven't and are staying are kind of regretting that they're staying. And for me and a few other people who are going but have to kind of work out that last four weeks of the deal, it's it's a little bit stressful. Um, I'm, what I'm actually doing is I'm doing some work, but I'm also using the time to do some writing. So, um, yeah, it's, um, it's a really interesting kind of place to be uh, – in the sense that I can use the time creatively, but uh, I've still got to commute in the winter chill by public transport to get there. And um, that's kind of putting me down. And there are all sorts of emotions that come up with this kind of thing. Am I ever going to be working full-time again? At this stage, I don't know. I may well retire early. I haven't 
got a tremendous amount of resources, but I've got enough to last me for a couple of years while I kind of work out what I'm doing. I've got some ideas as well. Um, I wouldn't mind podcasting, being a podcast consultant in some ways, doing some talks about podcasting at local libraries, all of that kind of thing. I don't really know how to tap into that, but I do know people who do talks at libraries, so there's a possibility I can kind of get into that kind of a gig. It, it may be a little bit of income, but it won't be a tremendous amount. But I think it's the time of life when I really want to hit the creative things that I should have been doing all along had they been able to be monetized. But uh, yeah, good time of life, interesting time of life. And um, I'm kind of okay with it. Sal's okay with it too. Next month, which is August 2017, we're going up to Sydney again to visit family for a little bit. We're going to drive the great new beast up there. We've actually named the new car the big uh, Toyota RAV4. It's called the Yeti because it's big and white. And uh, we're kind of driving it up there for the first big long drive in the car, and that's going to be cool. First car that we've ever had with cruise control. So I'm going to be checking out the cruise control and using that rather than keeping my foot on the pedal all the way up there. Uh, so, yeah, nice adventures. Uh, it's going to be really interesting having time that isn't constrained by other people's demands, if you know what I mean. And uh, not being at work means that I control 24 hours of my day with, of course, allowances for Sally and family and, and other things like that. My time's going to be my own, and, and working through that, working out what I'm going to do, how I'm going to fill the time, you'd expect to hear a lot more from me, by the way, because I may well end up doing more podcasts than I have been. But yeah, I'm kind of looking forward to it. It's challenging in some ways, but it's interesting in others, and I'm taking the positive side of things. Uh, I've also been going to the gym regularly, which probably helps with my mood, dealing with the endorphins from the um, exercise is good. Um, I'm losing a little weight. The muscle tone's going nicely. The wind is better. Um, so yeah, I'm kind of working through. Th there's a certain level of bitterness that comes with this kind of thing, where the redundancies go through and people kind of don't particularly want to get pushed, and you get a very subjective impression that all the work that you've done over the years hasn't been appreciated, even though they've paid you for it. Psychologically, there's a thing where they don't see you as a person, they see you as a replaceable part. And that's, of course, one of the problems with capitalism is that apart from the fact that it's, it's like the blob in the Steve McQueen blob, it just has to keep eating, it has to keep getting bigger, profits have to be made all the time, companies have to expand, GDP has to go up all the time, that kind of thing. And it's not necessarily benefiting grassroots people. So I've got a few issues with that, and I may well write about them in future. There are a lot of good people doing it already. But um, it's just one of those things that's come up as a part of my life and that I'm kind of interested in. So what have I been watching? Um, I, no, I talked about that one last time. I did, for the first time, see a movie that really sh I should have seen years ago because it's very much in the Paleo Cinema ballpark. It's very much part of uh, my love of film noir. But for some reason, I just hadn't seen it. And that is The Asphalt Jungle, uh, John Huston's movie from 1950, starring Sterling Hayden, Sam Jaffe, Marilyn Monroe, Louis Calhoun. I'm going to do it on a future podcast because I really like The Asphalt Jungle. I really think it's a movie that has a great maturity to it. 
It's got a, a little bit of cinema verite style to it. And it's, yeah, it's just the top of the game as far as this kind of a film is concerned. And I really, um, did enjoy seeing it. Uh, I came up on one of my streaming, on my streaming box, the Cody box. And I thought, yep, I've got to fill that gap. I've got to see the Asheville jungle. And I have. And I did enjoy it a lot. Now, the only other thing I've really seen, I kind of started watching some films on the Cody box and then really didn't get into them. I went, nah. So I'm not going to talk about those because it's, it's wasted time. I did see a really bad movie from about 1968, I think it is, starring Sammy Davis Jr. and Peter Lawford, Salt and Pepper. They're a couple of guys who run a nightclub in London, Soho, who get involved with an attempt to take over the British government. Uh, nuclear weapons are launched. Um, these guys are chain-smoking and, and lusting after girls. Um, yeah, it's um, it's an attempt to kind of do a, a buddy comedy thing, a, a Bob and Bing kind of thing, but sleazier. Some good English character actors are in it. John LeMessure is in it and a bunch of other people, but for the most part, it's really simplistic and dumb. They did do a sequel to it for reasons best known to Who the Fuck Knows, uh, directed by Richard Donner, oddly enough. But I, I watched Salt and Pepper and thought, yeah, I never have to do that again in my life. It really doesn't uh, grab me. Uh, there are some attractive women in miniskirts and all that kind of thing. But the guys basically see them as objects. And, you know, that, that's less attractive to me as time goes on. Uh, not too much else. I've, I've kind of just been uh, playing a lot of gaming, actually. I've been doing a lot of gaming. But... Um, that's mostly been kind of stress management in a sense, just kind of winding back and um, shooting things. It's kind of stress relieving, as indeed is the exercise and all the other things that I've said. But for the most part, that's pretty much what I've been watching, apart from these two movies that I'm going to talk about during the podcast. I hope to watch a lot more movies in the future. I've got a stack there now, and I keep um, acquiring them at, a, at an increased crazy rate. But there are a, a few, in fact, I, I picked up a, a DVD, a Blu-ray actually, of a couple of movies and then realised I already had them as a four-pack set with two other movies on DVD. So I may well put that into the box for a giveaway at the end of the year. Um, yeah, so I've got to be a little more careful with that. I've really kind of, maybe that's something I need to do is collate a database of the films that I've got on disc so that I don't make that kind of mistake because, yeah, I've got a pretty good memory and the wits are not yet deteriorating. Uh, but uh, having said that, uh, mistakes can be made and we all do it with books or with music or with um, movies where you pick up something you've already got and just forgotten that you've got it. So maybe what I need to do is, is do a database, sling it into Google Docs, and then I can access it from whichever platform. And if I'm in a shop and I think I want to buy something, I can quickly open that up, flick through it, and make sure that I am not in error when I do it. And by the way, if you're in Melbourne, and some people are, the best place to find eclectic movies on disc. It's at 8-50 Burke Street in Melbourne. It's in an alley kind of next to Burke Street up at the top end of Melbourne. And they have everything. They're just packed with um, import Blu-rays and DVDs. They've got some music in there as well, some vinyl. But I had a chat with the guy who runs the place, and we had a long chat about um, movies. Uh, I, I hipped him to a couple of Henry Silver movies he wasn't aware of, including Johnny Cool. 
and um, a few other bits and pieces there. So we kind of had a lot of fun, uh, just kind of grooving, and uh, I did drop some dough there. I did buy a Fernando de Leo box set, including La Mala Ordina, which I previously spoke about on a podcast, and uh, I may well podcast about some of the other um, Euro crime movies from that box set. A few other pieces I picked up there as well, so I'm kind of happy with that. And I'm tempted to go down there regularly and spend a lot of money, but I probably should hold back on the spending just a little bit at the moment. And, uh, yeah, play is a really interesting place. If you're in Melbourne or you live in Melbourne, Morris, our good friend Morris from Love That Album podcast, uh, swears by the place, as indeed do I. So um, I, I did drop some money there. It's all towards the podcast, of course. Um, none of this is for personal use. It's only so I can keep people entertained and amused. Bullshit. But, um, yeah, I really enjoyed visiting there. I just like browsing through the stuff they've got and going, okay, do I want that? Do I want that obscure little British crime drama on DVD? I'm fairly sure I haven't seen it and I don't have it. But is it any good? Uh, and then I'll go up there and I'll talk to him about John Ford movies for five minutes while I'm buying stuff. But, uh, yeah, <laughs> that's um, a really interesting place. They do have a Facebook page as well. If you get type play music and DVDs into Facebook, they do have a Facebook page and there's a bit of um, stuff that goes up there. It's a really nice place run by um, cool people who know this stuff as far as movies are concerned. But anyway, going to take a break now, and then I'm going to talk about the first of the two movies, The Spook Who Sat by the Door, which is a fantastic film. It stars Lawrence Cook, Jack Aaron, Don Blakely, Paul Butner, Paul Butler, sorry, and Paul Achille, who was also in Street Sweet Charity, which I talked about recently. Directed by Ivan Dixon, um, based on a very interesting book by a guy called Sam Greenley, who also co-wrote the script, and... It's um, a drama about the first black man to join the CIA in this fictional universe. Raise your right hand and repeat after me. The spook who sat by the door. The controversial best-selling novel now becomes a shocking screen reality. The story of the first black agent in the CIA. Whoever they select will be the best-known spy since 007. Their first mistake was letting him in. And let me congratulate you on being the first Negro officer in the Central Intelligence Agency. Their worst mistake was letting him out. You really want to mess with lady? I can show you how. For five years, he was their token Negro. Freeman, you people must serve. For five years, he kept his cool. Man, you just don't belong. I think you'd be happier with a mop in your hands. Like your mama. And in return, they taught him how to spy. How to fight. How to kill. For five years, he was the spook who sat by the door. And then... He turned gangs of ghetto kids into a highly trained guerrilla army. We live off the land. We match technology with spontaneity and improvisation. Men against machines, brains against computers. Now, if you don't think it can work, you check out Algeria, Kenya, Korea, and Iran. Can you dig it? He 
turned a summer riot into a revolution. This is not about hate white folks. It's about love and freedom enough to die or kill for it if necessary. He turned the American dream into a nightmare. Yesterday, a novel. Today, a movie. The spook who sat by the door. And mayor's office is now air-conditioned. Courtesy of the Black Freedom Fighters of Chicago. Okay, so the spook is out by the door. It's a 1973 action crime drama film based on the 1969 novel of the same name by Sam Greenlee. Um, the trailer there, which is beautifully narrated by uh, an actor of colour called Adolf Caesar, pretty much tells you the whole story. Um, the main protagonist, played by Lawrence Cook, is a guy called Dan Freeman. In order to be seen even-handed, it's decided that the CIA needs to hire people of colour. Of course, in this case, it means men of colour, because this is 1973 we're talking about. And so, after uh, winnowing through a whole bunch of applicants, they come up with one person, uh, Dan Freeman, who uh, gets through the whole training process. He's a political clean skin, doesn't have any agenda, does really well and passes everything brilliantly. So, of course, this being the CIA in 1973 or thereabouts, he's given a desk job as Top Secret Reproduction Centre Sections Chief, which means he's in charge of the copy machine for the top secret documents. He spends five years in the CIA being trained and working in this shit job and then leaves the CIA. Now, before I get any further into it, I'm going to go through the title because the title does have multiple meanings. Uh, The spook is sat by the door. First off, spook is a term, derogatory term for a person of colour. It's also a term for a spy. So there's a double meaning there. Um, And the spook is sat by the door has a particular meaning within the context of 1960s and 1960s sorry, 1970s America, in that companies that were wanted, that wanted to be seen as being equal opportunity would sit their non-white staff close to the front door so that when people visited their business or their office, they would seem to be in favour of civil rights when, in fact, what they're doing is tokenism. So there's multiple layers to the title of this one. And... In the context of 1960s, 1970s America, the people who were the audience for this film would be very, very aware of that. And before we go further also, being a white male living on the other side of the planet, I'm doing the best I can in getting the social context right for this one. I think it's fascinating. The more I read into it, the more I learn about it, the better. But um, if I get something wrong, I do apologise. So so the guy who wrote the novel, uh, Sam Greenlee, he couldn't get it published for a long time. He is a very interesting guy. He was in the military in the 1950s. Um, He was a well-educated guy. He had a Bachelor of Political Science from the University of Wisconsin in 1952. And he served in the military between 1952 and 1954. He was the first lieutenant. And then he worked for the United States Information Agency, serving in Iraq 
which is an interesting place to be in the 1950s. Um, I'm just looking up the um, United States Information Agency because it sounds a little bit spooky in the intelligence sense. It's a propaganda machine, basically, that was um, around the world. It was a propaganda machine for U.S. interests, basically. Um, Greenlee served in uh, Iraq, Pakistan, Indonesia, and Greece between 1957 and 1965 while working for the United States Information Agency. Um, He actually studied at the University of Thessaloniki in Greece and lived for three years on the island of Mykonos where he began to write the novel. Uh, It was published in 1969 as The Spook Who Sat by the Door, a story of a black man who is recruited by the CIA. Um, Really interesting background for this guy too. So he knew what uh, he was talking about. And you could probably not have worked for the United States Information Agency in the 1950s and 1960s and not been aware of the CIA and indeed how they operated at the time. So Greenlee wrote this novel, which sold really well, particularly in the African-American community, for fairly obvious reasons, uh, because after he it studies with the CIA, Dan Freeman then decides to become a revolutionary. Well, he always wanted to become a revolutionary. He was a black nationalist. He decided that black Americans needed a nation of their own. And so using the intelligence information he had and the training he had, he sets up a cell structure for um, a radical movement in the United States among black people. In this case, predominantly men. You don't see too many women, unfortunately, in the people that Freeman recruits. Now, the movie was directed, interestingly enough, by uh, an actor we know pretty well in another context, Ivan Dixon, who played Kinslow in Hogan's Heroes for a number of years and had been in a a number of other um, things before that. He was uh, in episodes of The Man From Uncle. He did uh, two episodes of The Twilight Zone, a couple of Perry Masons, a few other things. He'd been working in television predominantly since about 1957. And so he directed this film. Uh, it was you know, doing quite well among the African-American community when it came out in 73. But then the FBI shut it down. They talked to the people who were distribute, distributing it. They basically um, black banned, for want of a term, this movie. And it didn't really resurface, except in pirated VHS tapes. There were a lot of people sharing tapes of this movie back in the day. But uh, somebody found the original print in an archive somewhere. And it was re-released in about 2004 on DVD. And that's the copy that I've got for myself. I picked it up on eBay and got a pretty good um, price for it. But... It's one of those movies that you hear a lot about when you're looking at the history of black exploitation. You hear a lot about certain films, and it's only later on you find a decent copy of them. I think I the first one I saw was the pirated VHS version, but um, increasingly as time goes on, and where where I have the means to do so with these films, that I think are kind of important and um, are kind of 
stand above the mainstream of a particular genre, I will try to find an original copy because I kind of want to honour the people who made it by um, paying out money for it. It's not always possible. There are things that I'd really like that are outside my budgets and there are things that I really like that simply aren't available by other means. So um, I'm, I'm really glad I got this one. I, I only got it uh, in the mail a few weeks ago, but I knew I definitely wanted to get a copy of this film and um, talk about it on the podcast because I think I've talked about black exploitation movies before and how for some people they're politically and socially and sexually problematic and also uh, as far as gender roles are concerned. But this one is an outlier in a lot of ways. It advocates the overthrow of the American government. And then it goes along to show you how to do it, how to set up a cell structure. Um, The people that uh, Freeman recruits are trained in insurgency and building and uh, planting bombs, how to make explosives out of household items what to do if the person above you in the organization is arrested, what to do if you're arrested, in this case, start recruiting while in prison. So there are all of the things that the CIA had taught Freeman and which they themselves had done in a number of countries where they wanted to overthrow the government. Freeman then turns against the American government, which is kind of ironic, but it's something that's been done a number of times. Uh, the A lot of the people that America train in these kind of techniques eventually turn them against America. It happened in the Middle East in a number of occasions. It happened in South America. It happened in Central America. It's one of those things where, um, yes, you can train these people and tell them to overthrow the government, but you can't necessarily control them once they do. And particularly if you're... Um, your only interest is in making more money for your own country and not altruistically trying to spread democracy to the rest of the world because, in essence, uh, for a lot of history, the American government isn't about spreading democracy around the world. It's about spreading capitalism around the world. And um, Greenlee and Freeman, the character, are incredibly aware of this. So this film is as subversive as you're going to get in... uh, movie that's widely available it says that the system is corrupt that the american government is racist uh which of course is no surprise to anybody of color and it says that this is the means by which you would overthrow them were you so inclined and trained up and i can understand if not condone why the FBI shut this film down. But uh, having said that, it's a great film to watch. It's entertaining. It takes you on the journey. It starts out slow because Freeman himself is playing it low-key as he's going through the recruitment process with the CIA. He's plotting a middle path. He wants to be very good at what he does, but he doesn't want to draw attention to himself. He wants to be invisible because he wants to get through and be ultimately recruited once the um, selection process is complete so he he kind of you know stays in the background he's not trying to draw attention to himself he's trying to do things really well and show them by doing that that um, he's the perfect person for them to select because he in, in a sense infiltrates the CIA the way the CIA would want him to infiltrate if they take him out on um, field operations So it starts out slow because the character starts out slow and kind of takes things easy. 
Now, Freeman's play by an actor called Lawrence Cook, who didn't have a spectacular career in film. He was in movies like Cotton Comes to Harlem and Trouble Man, which is also directed by Ivan Dixon, and has that fantastic um, Marvin Gaye soundtrack. Uh, starred Robin Ho- Robert Hooks, and it was made in 1972, so it was made a year before um, The Spook Who Sat By The Door. He um, was in The Days of Our Lives in the middle 1970s as well, and in episodes of things like Family Matters, The Mod Squad, and Macmillan and Wife. So not a, a great long career as far as um, being an actor on screen is concerned. He, let's see how many IMDb's he's got. He's got 37 credits, which is not bad. But they were all, for the most part, kind of secondary roles. In the TV series of From Here to Eternity, he played a butler, for instance. And he did uh, two episodes of The Rockford Files and things like that. But um, a good, solid actor. And in this one, he, he does have an intensity. He's not kind of going over the top in the same way that Cyrus did in The Warriors. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? So there's none of that. It's very quiet and measured and intelligent and determined. And Lawrence Cook does a fantastic job of conveying that intensity. He's not, in order to run uh, basically a guerrilla army, he doesn't want to draw attention to himself as the head of that army. He doesn't want to grandstand because he knows that that's not the way things should be done. Um, you've got to keep low key. You've got to fly under the radar. And very much Freeman does that. Now, one of the um, things that is another part of Freeman's life, he, he does have um, a woman in his life who goes off to marry a doctor and then ultimately leaves the doctor and comes back to Freeman. And he also meets up with a character called, uh, called in the movie Daomi Queen, which isn't her name. But she's a hooker, played by Paula Kelly, who um, Freeman basically seduces. He, he goes with her for a night as a paid client. But um, that, kind, that kind of fades out in the movie, too. That plot thread really doesn't have a follow-through in the movie, which is probably one of the weaknesses of the film. And it may well be a limitation that the film had because of budgetary restrictions. So, um, but Paula Kelly... Beautiful woman, interesting actor. Um, didn't get a lot of the breaks that she should have as an actor, because, possibly because she's a person of colour or for other reasons, but she's um, good in this one. She really does. Uh, her, her role in the film is basically to show the persuasiveness of Freeman and the way he can um, speak to people and kind of seduce them into his way of thinking. She's, she's useful for that point of view. And uh, the other uh, female character in the film predominantly is Joy, played by Janet Leigh, who leaves Freeman for a doctor and then comes back to him. Now, there are a few other interesting characters in this film. J.A. Preston, who we know, McCleary in Remo Williams' The Adventure begins with um, Fred Ward back in 1985. But in this one, he's playing a cop who happens to be an old college friend of Freeman's. A Chicago cop, and they they have a friendship, and Freeman wants to kind of seduce him into the revolution. Doesn't turn out to play like that, but um, their the relationship's an interesting one, and they do have some good conversations as well. The other person who's really of interest in this film, and about whom not a fantastic amount is known, 
for some reason is uh, the character of Willie played by David Lemieux, who's um, one of the revolutionaries who works with... Uh, Willie's one of the revolutionaries who works with Freeman. And uh, David Lemieux, interesting guy, he was with the Black Panthers originally, but ended up being a Chicago police detective. Now, I don't know whether that means he was undercover with the Black Panthers or whether he had a change of heart and turned around, but uh, his character of Willie does get some interesting things to do in there. They do a little bit of play acting, a little bit of mocking Whitey in the film, which is kind of cool and and gives us a, a bit of background. His intensity is kind of full on because at the time he made the film, he was part of the Black Panthers. Um, so he's in there as well. Uh, then, there, then there are, of course, the action sequences. They're, they're not hot, big budget things. There's a, a few riots. There are some cars blown up. There are some other bits and pieces where um, Freeman and his revolutionaries um, form acts of, well, you could say terrorism. There's a nice scene where they've stolen a whole bunch of military rifles from an army barracks and are transporting them on a city bus. And the city bus has got a sign on it saying, at not in service. And an old white lady comes up and knocks on the door trying to get into the bus. And then a police car pulls up. So there's a nice tense scene with that, which plays out kind of well. And one of the things that's ongoing through this film is the way in which white culture at the time underestimated black people. There's a, a scene that demonstrates, in a comical sense, the fact that a black man in a uniform with a mop and a bucket can get anywhere in an organization because they're invisible, they're cleaners, they're not seen to be people, they just seem to be part of the background. And there's a scene where um, Willie goes into um, a CEO's office and steals things off his desk while he's on the phone. So they play that kind of interestingly as well. And there's another scene where a group of um, light-skinned black revolutionaries rob a bank in order to help fund the revolution, of course. And the um, police scanners and, and the news broadcasts talk about a group of white men who have robbed the bank. So they kind of play against the expectations of white culture and use that to their advantage. And that's one of the fascinating things about this film is just the way that white privilege is turned against itself as a part of the revolution that Freeman wants to start and indeed does end up starting. Now, there's a, a turn at the end of the film involving Dawson, the police detective played by J.A. Preston and Freeman. But... The film ends on a very interesting note. It doesn't follow through on whether the revolution is successful or not. And maybe that's not the point. The point is that there is a revolution and that this is how it came about. And this is how you set up a revolution. In fact, this movie is subversive in the sense that it does show a lot of the techniques of revolutionaries. And in an interesting way, there's a scene with Freeman and somebody else standing on one of the elevated train platforms in Chicago. Now, all the Chicago scenes were filmed without the approval of the local government in Chicago and in Illinois. It was basically guerrilla filmmaking. And they're standing on the um, platform looking out over uh, a suburb showing how you judge distance for sniper shot fire. And how if you shoot between the buildings, you don't have to do too much adjustment for the wind because the buildings block the wind. And how you measure distance based on 
the distance between the streetlights and the distance of blocks because in a city with a grid pattern, you can tell how many blocks away something is, how the distance is involved. And on a smaller scale, there are fixed distances between the streetlights. So a sniper can judge with great accuracy the distance of somebody he's about to shoot and set the sights accordingly. Those little bits of details and that little kind of nuanced stuff, which is chilling in, in what it's um, portraying, but gives a real verisimilitude to the movie. There's a sense of realism about this. There's a sense that was there to be a revolution in 1960s and 1970s America. This is what would occur. And you've got to remember the social context as well. Martin Luther King had been killed. Malcolm X was assassinated with a sawn-off shotgun. Um, the civil rights movement, uh, the supporters of the civil rights movement, like um, Robert Kennedy, were killed. All of these things kind of came together to really uh, give certain portions of uh, black America a real fear that all the gains that were made, all the gains they hoped to make, were going to come to nothing. So it was a very um, tense time. And then there's the Watts riots that happened as well. Uh, it, it was a time of great change, but also of great peril, particularly to non-white people in, a, in the urban areas of America. Chicago under Mayor Daley um, was almost a police state. And uh, the 1968 civil rights, um, in the inverted commas, riots at the time during the Democratic Convention you can look up that yourself and just see what occurred during those. So basically the times were tumultuous. And a movie like this, and, and of course the book coming out in 1969 just after um, all, all of these assassinations uh, occurred, really would have played into the zeitgeist incredibly powerfully. And the movie itself, it's kind of a historical document in the sense that it, it's the most militant um, of the generally, and this is used very broadly as term, black exploitation movies of the 1970s. It's the one that says that a revolution is justified in order for people to be free, even if there's some collateral damage. And and that's kind of a threatening thing to a lot of people. But nonetheless, it's, it's a viewpoint that is shared by a, a number of people around the world. The people who are sitting on top are going to take any steps they can to stay on top. And the people who are beneath them become increasingly desperate in order to be free. They they know that the people above them are, are free. They know the people above them run everything. There are some pretty um, confronting parallels with our own times and with privilege and people who are not able to be privileged and, and the kind of thinning out of the middle class and the polarization of society into very wealthy people and very poor people. All of that makes this movie just that more pointed and that much more powerful than maybe it would have been in the 80s or 90s even, because times are in some ways getting a lot better, but also there are particular perils and particular concerns in our time that are reflected in the times in which this movie and the book it's based on were made. And so I found it very kind of confronting, but it was a movie that I, I really, I even enjoyed it because it said things that people were saying and it took a viewpoint and it took a stand and it took an ideological base, which didn't 
wasn't wishy-washy. It was solid. It was very much um, something that existed in the real world at the time. And it um, really does reflect a viewpoint of history, which people can, and, and I'm using this term very pointedly, whitewash and pretend didn't occur, but it was a part of things. The Black Panthers existed. The Nation of Islam still exists in America, and various civil rights leaders were killed during those times. So there's not too much else to say about the spook who sat by the door. There are some moments of humour in it as well, particularly at the start with the um, innate racism of uh, the white people in power, particularly in the CIA, and how... Um, I'll give you just give you a couple of ideas, a couple of things that are said by white people in this movie, just to give you an idea of what I'm talking about. Things like saying to a man, you're a credit to your race, and it's a question of evolution. And some, one of the CIA guys says to him, Freeman, your people must serve in order to be seen as equal. It's almost like civil rights and equality are conditional on people of colour and people who are from a lower socioeconomic group or from a non-white race have to jump through hoops held up by the white people so that they can get rights that are basically their legal rights. And that kind of condescension is reflected very well in this film. But anyway, I'm going to take a break now. When I get back, I'm going to talk about a very different movie which is replete with white people except for one particular actor, and that is Clint Eastwood's directorial debut, Play Misty For Me, which also stars James McEachin, Jessica Walter, Donna Mills, and John Larch. Oh, yeah, before I go, by the way, um, the entirety of The Spooky Sat by the Door is available on YouTube along with some interview footage with um, Sam Greenlee, the guy who wrote the novel and co-wrote the script for it as well. So it is available out there, but I recommend if you're able to, pick up the DVD. Do my favour. Play Misty for me. For Clint Eastwood, an invitation to terror. You ever find yourself being completely smothered by somebody? There's no escape in passion. There's no escape in speed. There's no escape from terror. You will change the locks, huh? Nobody asked you to wait for it. You're not jumping me, Buster Blue Eyes! Get off my back, Evelyn! Play Misty for me. Get off my back. Play Misty for me. Get off my back. Play Misty for me. Get off my back. Play Misty for me. The most terrifying words you'll ever hear. Play Misty for me. The screen's most frightening plunge into terror. Have to get you all nice for David. I hope he likes what he sees when he walks in here. Because that's what he's taking to hell with him. Just hope we're lucky enough to grab her the next time she tries it. Tries what? To kill you. The next scream you hear will be your own.
Okay, so Play Misty for Me is a 1971 thriller directed by Clint Eastwood. The script was written partly by Joe Himes, who was Eastwood's secretary at the time. Then he got his friend Dean Reisner to uh, rewrite the script. Dean Reisner had been working with um, Eastwood on a couple of films you might know, Dirty Harry, Coogan's Bluff, The Enforcer, and a number of other films. He worked on a few of them with him. Uh, he'd started out doing episodic TV, things like Ben Casey, Long Hot Summer, Slattery's People, which is a TV series, I think, with Richard Krenner. And he'd worked previously with Eastwood in Rawhide. He, he wrote five different episodes of Rawhide. So he, both of the screenwriters were people that Eastwood trusted and knew quite well. And so this was his first directorial movie, and uh, they, they put the script together. Now, interesting film for a number of ways, not the least of which is the nature of the protagonist in this film, a character uh, called Dave, played, oddly enough, by Clint Eastwood. He's a nighttime DJ for KRML Radio in Carmel, California, which is actually a really real radio station, apparently. And he plays jazz late at night and reads poetry, and he's got a cool, sexy voice. And every now and then a woman will call up and ask him to play Misty for her. Now, Misty is a jazz standard written by Errol Garner in, the, I think, the 1940s. There are a number of different versions of it. Ella Fitzgerald did a version. Johnny Mathis did a version. Uh, Sarah Vaughan did a version of it with lyrics. And I'm going to play the song Misty, sung by Ella Fitzgerald at the end of the podcast for a particular reason, because the lyrics, which we never see in the movie, for the song Misty, uh, kind of uh, make us understand the antagonist in this film, a character called Evelyn, played by Jessica Walter, a little more closely. There are some the lyrics are in taken out in a different context, quite scary. It's a bit like when David Lynch in Blue Velvet had Dean Stockwell lip syncing in Dreams by Roy Orbison and totally reinvented the song and this is probably a missed opportunity they really should have had a female singer sing the lyrics to Misty in the film because it would have fleshed out the character of Evelyn who is incredibly well played by Jessica Walter but is in some ways we don't get an understanding of who she was before the events of the movie take place now the story is fairly simple uh, a brief fling between a male disc jockey and an obsessed female fan takes a frightening de and deadly turn when a, another woman enters the picture. So that, that's essentially the story. Dave, who's a late-night DJ, big into jazz. In fact, there are some scenes with um, Clint Eastwood and the ultimate love interest in the film, a character called Toby, played by Donna Mills filmed live at the Monterey Jazz Festival. And that's quite cool stuff too. Um, it, it gives us a little kind of piece of documentary in the middle of this kind of horror thriller, which takes us into a, a different world in a way. And I'm not sure whether it's a good or a bad thing, but it's very much tonally different than the rest of the film. Now, the supporting cast I like a lot in this film as well. 
there are some really interesting people in there. I'll just go down the IMDb list to give you an idea. John Larch plays Sergeant McCallum, the uh, cop in the piece. And John Larch, his face is going to be instantly recognisable to anybody who's watched television in the 1960s and 70s. did a ton of roles. And in this one, he's quite good and uh, a little bit tongue-in-cheek as well. He's given a little more to work with than is normally the case where he plays cops or other authority figures in his career. But uh, I kind of like him in this one. Uh, you can tell he's got a target on his back right from the start because there are usually um, two or three people killed in this kind of movie before the ultimate confrontation with the a- antagonist. You've also got Owen Harvey, who was a movie star from the 1940s. Turns up as Madge, a woman who is trying to uh, get Dave to come and work for her radio station elsewhere. It's a, it's a step upward for Dave. And uh, she's in there as well. A couple of interesting things about Owen Harvey, apart from her own career. She was married to Alan Jones, the guy who sang the donkey serenade in the movie The Firefly back in the 1930s. And she's the mother of the singer Jack Jones. So Irene Harvey's in there, and she it's one of her, I think it's her last film role. She did a couple of television bits afterwards, but she retired from filmmaking after this movie, and she gets a couple of nice scenes as well, playing the owner of um, a radio network. Then you've got James McGeechan, who plays Al Monte, another one of the DJs. James McGeechan I like a lot. He's a black actor. Had a, a pretty good career. He actually had his own TV series called Tenorfly in the 1970s where he played an insurance investigator. Charismatic as fuck in that TV series. It didn't last very long at all. But I really liked watching it when I did because um, he was you know, an intelligent guy, a very charismatic actor, and his Al Monty in this one is a very cool cat. And fortunately, he's one of the people who survives the movie. You can not usually guarantee that um, the black guy gets killed first, but that doesn't happen in this case. They kind of slightly subvert things there. The other person of colour in the movie is Clarice Taylor playing Birdie, who's the housekeeper for Dave. She doesn't fare quite as well. She's not killed, but um, comes close to it as Evelyn goes totally off the rails. Uh, then you've got the last of all, and this is kind of cool, somebody with whom... Um, Eastwood had worked a number of times and was probably something of a support structure for Clint Eastwood in his directorial debut. And that's a character called Murphy who works at the sardine factory in Monterey, a bar where Dave hangs out. And he's played by Don Siegel, the movie director. Yes, the Don Siegel of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, Escape from Alcatraz, The Beguiled, Charlie Varick, The Black Window, uh, windmill sorry coogan's bluff madigan um yeah and the killers that don siegel plays the bartender in this film and you can see the rapport between him and clint eastwood they do have a bit of fun and siegel does in his first acting role that's kind of cool his uh his bartender really does feel like a real person and uh there's a little bit of fun there the movie's beautifully shot as well it's filmed around monterey and carmel up about on the coast north of San Francisco. And there are some beautiful shots there. There are the kind of the storm-tossed seas and the twisted trees on the coast and the rocky cliffs and waterfalls and uh, curving roads and beautiful houses that jut over the ocean and all sorts of things like that. 
Uh, the other movie that I know that uses this particular scene, scenery, sorry, this location, well, is Basic Instinct because Catherine Trammell's um, Home Away From Home is on the same part of the coast. And you get that sense of the roiling seas as a metaphor for what's going on with the characters. And that's very much a part of um, Play Mystic for me as well. The music's chosen really well. There's some jazz stuff in the background, and then, of course, there's the Monterey Jazz Festival footage. We get a little bit, but not nearly enough, of Errol Garner playing Misty. Uh, And then we also get the other big standout track of the piece, which is Roberta Flack's First Time Ever I Saw Your Face, which is used in the romantic scenes between Dave and Toby, the um, character played by Donna Mills, where they're walking along scenic landscapes and make love under a waterfall in a pool of water and all that kind of thing. It really is um, a kind of beautiful and romantic scene. It's really odd that there there are a whole bunch of different tonal shifts in this movie. There's the comedy stuff between um, Al Monty, played by James McGeechan and Dave, and the comedy stuff between Murphy, the bartender, played by Don Siegel and Dave. And you get the beautiful, lyrical, lovely landscape scenes when Dave is talking and um, kind of grooving with Donna Mills's character, Toby. Then you get the kind of stark horror stuff involving Evelyn. Now, Evelyn's a really interesting character, and Jessica Walter is fantastically good in this film. She starts out kind of slightly flaky and but sexy with it. She um, arranges a meeting with Dave at the sardine factory in Monterey, which, by the way, is a restaurant. You can go to it right now. It's still there. I checked on Google Maps, and it's still there. And um, the menu's pretty good, too. I did check out the menu. See the depths I go to with this podcast? Uh, the location is in a movie, and I find out what's on the menu at the restaurant where they filmed it. You can't ask for more. The steaks look pretty good. Uh, let me have a look here. Filet mignon, ribeye. Um, they've got lamb as well. They've got side dishes, parmesan, truffle, tater tots, Monterey jack potatoes. So, yeah, if I ever get to Monterey, I definitely want to go to the sardine factory. But maybe I'm hungry. Maybe that's why I'm diverging there. But um, to get back to the character of Evelyn, really nuanced acting by Jessica Walter, who went on to play character and is probably better known for playing Lucille Bluth in Arrested Development and the voice of Mallory Archer in the Archer uh, cartoon series. Um, yeah, but a really fine actor. In this one, she the character starts out kind of kooky but sexy, and then as time goes on, she's had the one-night stand with Dave, and she turns up at his place with groceries the next day like they were in a relationship, and then just keeps escalating things. She turns up unexpectedly. She ruins the business opportunity Dave has. She um, commit, tries to commit suicide in his bathroom, and he finds himself trapped by her. And the, the bit that I find difficult with this character in this film is that Dave keeps fucking her, in spite of the fact that he knows she's as crazy as a clockwork dog turd. He, he keeps sleeping with her, and, and he doesn't know how to say no. He doesn't know how to get out of this thing, which is really kind of kooky because um, I know stalking laws weren't on the books in those days and that kind of thing, but 
there's got to then restraining orders weren't around either for that matter but for me you get somebody who does these things and is, is that insistent i'd be talking to the cops right off from the start and i'd be looking at my legal options but dave doesn't do that which makes me think and this is only a kind of subconscious impression that the reason the previous relationship between dave and toby played by donna mills failed was because of his infidelity and in a sense he likes fucking evelyn even though she's as i said totally um mentally deranged and has as a severe and increasing mental illness he keeps fucking her which intensifies that mental illness to the point where she becomes um a crazy murderess and um, totally off-the-rails human being. Now, I'm not saying it's his fault, the character's fault, that she does that. Mental health's a complicated issue. Uh, but there are, can be people who enhance and intensify the mental issues of other people. And the reason I don't like the character of Dave in this movie is that he empowers the dangerous and damaged aspects of Evelyn by sleeping with her more than once. Yeah, you can make a mistake and have a one-night stand, and you find that the person with whom you had that, and again, with no kind of promises of anything else. But the actions Dave takes in this movie enhance Evelyn's illness. Now, in my job, which I'm soon to leave, of course, as I mentioned, I deal with complaints, and one of the issues that really is a hard part of being in complaints management is how do you deal with people who have a mental illness who are raising complaints about a business that are totally unreasonable and are not reality-based? How do you manage that and not enhance the things that are wrong and the illness this person has? And it's not easy, I'll be honest with you. Managing people with mental illness is not easy. And if the mental illness involves a large distance from reality for that person the obligation on you as a person dealing with that person is whatever you do you try not to make that illness worse or try not to trigger the worst aspects of that illness and dave just simply doesn't do that in this movie he's kind of flattered that somebody has this intense focus on him this id fix and even though Eastwood doesn't necessarily play it that way in his acting, the actions of his character do that. Now, having said that, this is a really effective thriller. It really does work. There are some jump scares that maybe might have been tightly, more tightly edited had they been made in decades afterwards because we're much better at doing jump scares now. Of course, nobody's as good as Val Luton was. But there are a couple of jump scare moments in this that really are effective. There's a bit where Dave wakes up and finds Evelyn over his bed. There are a couple of other bits. And the ultimate um, scene of confrontation between Dave, Toby and Evelyn is really effective because she comes in, stabs him, and then disappears down a corridor in, in the house. And it's almost, in a sense, she's kind of goes in, darts in, attacks, darts out, disappears, jumps out unexpectedly, attacks again. It's a repeated attack, and we get this strong sense, which is a nice way of doing this, that she's a feral animal who comes in, wounds the prey, moves her out while the prey weakens, and then darts in again to do more. 
It's an incredibly effective predatory kind of move there, which I like in this film. It, it really does make it something different, and it heightens the threat in a way that really kind of ultimately gives us a viewpoint of Evelyn as a feral predator. Now, there's aspects of misogyny in this film as well, and the ultimate um, turnabout where Dave does deal with her is, in the way the film is set up, justified, but in another way is kind of confrontational. It all depends on how you see the character of Dave in this film, who's kind of living a good life. He's got a a nice little pad in um, Carmel, He's got a sports car. He goes in and does his job. He wants to move his career on, but he's kind of in a comfort zone there. He sleeps around a little bit. He hangs out with his buddies. He's kind of living the dream in a sense. And then suddenly somebody who's incredibly damaged comes into his life and tilts it off balance. I don't have a lot of sympathy for the Dave character, not because he's um, a player, not because of anything else, but because of the way... He reacts when Evelyn manifests mental illness. Now, the time I first saw this, I I didn't have that kind of nuanced view of things. I saw it as, yeah, this crazy woman comes in and kind of um, figuratively emasculates this male. Uh, And being a young man at the time, of course, that was something that I was always scared of. Indeed, many young men are. Uh, scared of whether it's physical or emotional emasculation. And Dave's very much a part of that. Uh, he's, his character and the kind of alpha male, he's sexy, he's attractive, he can get women when he wants to. And then suddenly having somebody over whom he has no control and who has a randomness that he can't deal with. And there is the argument as well that the character of Dave isn't as intelligent as, as he thinks he is. But having said that, um, Clint Eastwood's okay in the film. He he's always had a kind of limited range as an actor, in some ways. But uh, he he does what's necessary in this one. It's the start of his directorial career, which has been a really good one. And even though there are those tonal shifts which don't necessarily carry well through the through line of the story, there are some beautiful shots in there. Um, it's it's beautifully filmed. And it's held together mostly by the acting of Jessica Walters. She is fantastically good in this film. And there's a rawness to the way she plays Evelyn and the passive aggressiveness and and the disorder, the mental disorder that she has. It really is played in a way that makes us not sympathetic to the character, but to feel sorry for this path of illness that she's going through and that's a hard one to do and ultimately at the end of the film you're a shrieking harridan predator with a large knife in your hand having even even though the script is underwritten from the mental illness point of view having the ability that jessica walter had to give us a certain sense that this woman is lost is really really a credit to her craft it's, um, yeah, at one level you can just see it as this crazy bitch, and I'm using that word with uh, parentheses around it, this crazy bitch attacking a guy who fucked her. 
um, you can see it at that kind of um, level, and I'm sure men's right advocates are going to see it a lot differently than I do. But uh, for me, the Dave character is at least partly the villain of this piece, in that what his actions have made things worse, and his lack of character in dealing with this particular situation is ultimately what leads to the unfortunate and bloody resolution of the film. So, yeah, I like, I'm not saying it's a bad film at all, but I'm saying that the Dave character is incredibly problematic in this film. It works really well. Uh, the music's well selected. It's a good um, debut for Clint Eastwood as a director, but being from the 1970s, it doesn't have the gender complexity that we'd expect from a modern film. And to a certain extent, we've got to acknowledge that it is a movie of its time. But again, uh, Jessica Walter, just the star of the, she's a standout player in this film. Really, really superb acting. And I watched parts of her acting in this film twice just to kind of inform myself. And there's a subtlety and, and the way she holds her jaw and her body language and all these other little bits of business give us a very complicated character that's not written in a very complicated manner. And I really enjoy that. But um, anyway, that's about it for uh, Play Misty for me. Revisit it if you haven't seen it in a long time. If you haven't watched it before, it's worth checking out because it, uh, if, even if you're just a Clint Eastwood fan, just seeing his first um, directorial effort is worth the effort. But it's an effective entertainment with those provisors that I've mentioned. Uh, by the way, before we go, we do have a bit of feedback. I got an email from Nathaniel DeBell, uh, who as going back through the back is going back through the back catalogue of Paleo Cinema episodes. And Nathaniel says, This time I'm writing only a quick email to express my enjoyment of a Paleo Cinema podcast episode. I listened to 160 the Ipcrest File Billion Dollar Brain. In truth, I could have mentioned many of your podcast episodes, and I've seen neither of the films mentioned, although now I would like to see them both. The reason I've singled out this episode is that one of my favourite film and television distributors, the UK-based network, is currently having a summer sale where approximately 1,600 items are being sold at a 45% price reduction, although overseas shipping is quite expensive, and one of these items on sale is a Blu-ray disc of The Ipcrest File, 1965. Network are best at their releases of classic British film and TV series, so I thought I'd mention this out because there might be some items you or your audience would like to pick up. Among the items of interest to me are discs of the previously mentioned movies, a variety of Jerry Anderson productions, and other classics like The Thief of Baghdad, 1940. Are there any particular titles you'd recommend to your audience? Completely aside, I recently watched Edward Grechner's Slovak New Wave film, The Dragon's Return from 1968. It's a very powerful motion picture set in the folk environment of Slovakia at an indeterminable period, and I thoroughly recommend it. I hope things are well with you, Nathaniel. Um, yeah, Nathaniel, recommendations. Here's what I recommend, and, and this is a tip to anybody. Check out, if you want to, I mean, I've got the blue, the Australian Blu-ray of the Oppressed File, and I've got the Australian Blu-ray of The Thief of Baghdad, and they're both really nice ones. They're a bit bare bones, but if you just want the movie and you can do your own background stuff rather than waiting for the extras, they're worth doing. Now, the reason I say that is 
go to eBay and search for Blu-rays of films you might be interested in. Network is a good distributor, and they do good product. I've got no arguments with that. But the tyranny of distance means that the price gets bumped because of the postage. So you might want to do this, and I do this a lot, is check out eBay first because it will you can filter through distance and postage so you can find if there's a blu-ray of a certain film you want maybe somebody in australia has imported it and so the postage onto you is going to be cheaper but i do a lot of that stuff and i find a lot of good things and there are also people in the uk who are selling things and offering free postage of particularly dvds and blu-rays to australia and so you can save some money by that. And the, the delivery time is usually about two weeks at the most. So it's often worth just um, doing that little bit of an eBay search and seeing whether what you want is available at a price that's less than going through a distributor. Often is the case, and I've found some really cool things. And there are times when I look at the other things that those particular people have in, for sale and find things that I want. So you can do a bit of a search. You can use eBay as a resource as much as you can, uh, a distributor's own website, and save yourself a lot of money. And um, I highly recommend that to anybody. I don't know what it's like in the UK or Europe or the United States doing that, but it's worth giving it a go because here in Australia, it can put a little more money in your pocket. So anyway, that's about it this time around. Thank you to... Best Boy Kerry and the other Kerry and all of the other people who support the podcast via Patreon. I'm really going to have to update the Patreon credits at the end of the podcast. Uh, by the way, if you go to patreon.com slash paleocinema, I'm starting to put up some of my essays and reviews there. I will link them through to the Facebook page, but they'll direct you back to the Patreon page where the um, the writing is hosted so i'm doing more of that kind of thing and i'm enjoying it as well and i'm getting some cool feedback about it but anyway look after yourselves i'll be back in two weeks with the paleo cinema podcast i'll be back next week with the martian drive-in podcast so keep watching good movies keep watching bad movies uh hug the people you love if you don't have somebody in your life at the moment all the best wishes to you. Life can be hard at times, but it beats the alternative, even when we think it doesn't. So take care, and I'll be back very soon. And here are the Patreon credits, as usual, followed by Ella Fitzgerald singing Misty. And just pay attention to the lyrics, because they will inform you a little more about the character of Evelyn in Play Misty for me. Thank you to all of the Patreon subscribers. And here are the credits in the style of movie credits to acknowledge and thank all of them. We have Tom, our focus puller, Sarah, our special effects technician, Ian, our caterer, Grant, our technicolor consultant, Claire, our script doctor, Gary, our prop master, Morris, our music director, Jan, our dialect coach, Armin, our key grip, Matt, our rattlesnake wrangler, Elaine, our scientific advisor, Julia, our casting director, Chris, our camera operator, Christopher, our gaffer, Miss Jane, the wardrobe mistress, Tansy, the foley artist, Alyssa, the location scout, Mark, our second unit director, Paul, our special makeup effects director, Tammy, our donut wrangler, Tim, our New York unit director, Rabbi Steve, our spiritual advisor, Steve, our script doctor, 
Dylan, our goat wrangler, Eric, our set security lead, Kerry, our second script doctor, Richard, our set photographer, and our extras, Kathleen, Mark, and David. And let's not forget Steve Sullivan, our director of Monster Effects, and Richard C., our transportation co-captain. So thank you very much to all the subscribers, and you too can subscribe at patreon.com slash paleocinema. And too much 